This is The Weekly for Friday, May 3rd. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. With a third of the Senate on the ballot next year and all 435 House members, what is the recruiting effort like for Democrats and Republicans? What are the races to watch? And how does all of this impact the potential control of each chamber in 2021? Mike DeBonis has been looking at the races, assessing state-by-state politics, and crunching the numbers for The Washington Post, from a handful of toss-up Senate races to the efforts by both party leaders to make sure the right candidate is on the ballot, we examine all of it just ahead. Mike DeBonis, with so much attention on the presidential race in 2020, you've been taking a deep dive into the congressional races. And let's start with the Senate, because in a piece that you wrote earlier this week, you indicated that while the map may look good for the Democrats, the politics helps the Republicans. How so? Right. Uh, You know, last year, you have to start by looking at last year. Last year, Democrats had about the worst possible scenario uh, they could be faced with. They were defending Senate seats in 10 states that President Trump had won in 2016. They had very few, basically only one real offensive opportunity, and that was in Nevada, uh, where Dean Heller, Heller, Republican Dean Heller, had, had a seat in a state that Hillary Clinton had won. Um, and basically, they were just holding on for dear life in 2018. Looking forward to 2020, on the top line, you know, sort of analysis, it's better for Democrats. They've got, they're defending uh, uh, half as many seats as Republicans are. Uh, but then when you take a little bit deeper look, it's not quite as great because the, the, the Demo- the Republicans are by and large defending seats on, in Republican states, states that President Trump already won, uh, in 2016. Democrats are on the, at the same time defending, largely defending seats in democratic states. There's a couple sort of seats that are on either side of that. Um, Democrats are eyeing Colorado, where Cory Gardner is running for re-election in a state that Trump lost pretty handily. In Maine, where Susan Collins is seeking uh, a fifth term in uh, uh, in a state that President Trump also lost. But on the flip side, you know, Democrats have vulnerabilities of their own, in particular Alabama, uh, where, of course, Doug Jones uh, won that special election in 2017. So when you then look at the actual dynamics, there's just not a lot of slam dunk places outside of Colorado where Democrats feel that they really have an advantage. Uh, So, you know, so the notion that at the top line, Democrats are defending fewer seats than Republicans are, that sort of obscures the real reality here, which is that the pickup opportunities are fairly few and far between. Let's take a look at some of the states, and and we'll begin with the news in Georgia that Stacey Abrams will not run for the U.S. Senate. How disappointed was Senator Chuck Schumer? Well, you know, outwardly, you know, it's it's a there's no disappointment, but inwardly, this was a huge blow because Georgia was a state where Stacey Abrams and almost Stacey Abrams alone could have turned this into a top tier um, marquee race uh, in a way that any other candidate really probably can't do that. 
you know, Stacey Abrams became a national figure, a national phenomenon in 2018 with her, her gubernatorial race. She raised a, a huge amount of money from small donors. She just generated excitement. She generated turnout. She came as close as anyone has uh, come in, in two decades to winning as a Democrat, winning statewide. And, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer was was very keen to have her turn around and bring that same excitement and same capacity to a Senate race against David Perdue, uh, a first term uh, Republican senator who um, Democrats believe is vulnerable. He, they, they, they don't believe that he has uh, uh, done much to get, make himself especially well known in the state. He hasn't separated himself much at all from President Trump. Um, they think that he is vulnerable to uh, a, a challenger who can bring outsized excitement uh, to that race. But they didn't get in in Stacey Abrams, and now they're sort of forced to look around and wonder who else is going to be able to to come in. Uh, I mean, clearly there was a reason why Chuck Schumer selected her to deliver the Democratic response to the president's State of the Union address. Absolutely. And uh, truth be told, she did a spectacular job. She... she uh, uh, got uh, positive reviews for uh, uh, something that very, you know, the the response to the the presidential uh, State of the Union address is often considered where you know promising political careers go to die. You know, this is uh, you know there's a long line of folks who have been chosen for that task who have sort of fallen flat. But Stacey Abrams did a very uh, creditable job there, and um, I think Chuck Schumer was hoping that. You know who would ask her to do that? It was hoping that 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 she would see that she still had uh, the the wherewithal and the opportunity to to go and then turn around and run in this next race and uh, help Democrats out in a big way. Let's turn to Maine, as you mentioned, Senator Susan Collins, uh, really an independent Republican, but with the R next to her name, that's important for the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell. But last month on C-SPAN's Newsmakers program, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia said that he would campaign for Susan Collins as a Democrat. Does that give her some political shield moving ahead as she seeks another term? Yeah, Susan Collins is considered, certainly by Republicans, to be a unique uh, figure in the, in that state that uh, she has carefully tended for many years uh, a very independent image uh, as a person who's willing to break with her party on occasion to do what's right for her state. Democrats, the the theory of that Democrats have is number one, the state is becoming more solidly blue on the presidential level. That while President Trump came close, that uh, there is some disaffection with him in the state, that Senator Collins herself uh, violated basically her own image as a moderate by, you know, siding with the Trump administration on several occasions, including the tax bill and probably even bit more than that, the uh, confirmation of uh, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And they thought that there were some vulnerabilities in her moderate armor this time that uh, given the right opponent and the right kind of campaign that she can be beaten uh, by basically portraying her as just another Republican senator. Um, but we have yet to see a real legitimate challenger, a Democratic challenger, get in that race. And I 
talked to Democratic strategists last week who said, you know, her numbers are not as have not moved to the as much as Democrats would like to think they have, that uh, she remains popular in the state. She's very well known and that it's going to be an uphill battle regardless. Um, but there is a big but for both Maine and Georgia, which is that the, the, the presidential race is really going to dominate uh, the cycle, as it always does in a presidential cycle, and they believe that President Trump is unpopular in the state, and they think that um, it's going to be maybe difficult for Senator Collins uh, or David Perdue to to swim significantly upstream if if the if President Trump is going to be unpopular and potentially losing those states. And we should point out the nonpartisan Cook political report listing Maine as a lean Republican for Senator Susan Collins. I want to remind our listeners that we're talking with Mike DeBonis, a breakdown on the 2020 congressional races. So much attention on the presidential race. We wanted to look at how things stand for Congress and the control of Congress. The other toss-up state on the Republican side is Arizona. And this is really shaping up to be a fascinating race as Martha McSally is now vying for a full six-year term, the seat previously held by Senator John McCain. She lost in 2018, but then was appointed by the Arizona governor to fill out that seat. Right. Once you get past Colorado, I think Arizona is the next state Democrats look at as a likely pickup. A couple reasons for that. Number one, Martha Martha McSally's already lost a Senate race in Arizona. She lost last year to Kirsten Sinema, uh, but uh, she was appointed uh, pretty quickly after the election to fill the seat that was uh, held by John McCain before his death. And now she is uh, going to be uh, in, in hopefully Republicans believe in stronger position as an incumbent uh, to run in 2020. Uh, the other thing is that uh, Democrats have one of their most, you know, sort of blue chip recruits in Mark Kelly, uh, the former astronaut, the husband of former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, uh, who has uh, who launched his campaign early. Uh, has already raised a lot of money, uh, has uh, running, by all accounts, a very professional and very careful uh, effort to uh, win the seat for Democrats. And uh, there's just a lot of optimism uh, that uh, Kelly's going to be able to, uh, you know, send McSally to another loss. And this is going to be the, uh, another pickup for Democrats. In Alabama, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, but uh, the Doug Jones campaign is encouraging Roy Moore to run again for the uh, U.S. Senate seat. Give our audience some background on what happened when these two individuals faced each other and whether or not you think Republican Roy Moore is seriously thinking about running again in Alabama. Uh, I'll answer the second question first. He certainly does seem serious. He sent out a fundraising solicitation as recently as last night or this morning uh, saying that not only was he thinking about it, he that he was thinking of how uh, we, we mentioned Brett Kavanaugh earlier. That he was thinking about how Brett Kavanaugh had uh, uh, emerged from sexual uh, uh, abuse uh, accusations to become a Supreme Court justice. Well, you know, you know, that gets into Roy Moore's history. You know, his candidacy uh uh, basically collapsed uh, in 2017 in the special election when my paper reported that he had been uh, he had sexually assaulted and uh, otherwise targeted underage girls uh, when he was a young man in the late 1970s, early 1980s. 
Uh, he could never really shake those uh, uh, allegations, and it, it sent uh, Doug Jones to a improbable and really uh, surprising victory uh, in a state that uh, people have no doubt uh, President Trump is going to win uh, in 2020. So, you know, that seat, Doug Jones is against any Republican nominee other than uh, Roy Moore is seen as uh, tremendously vulnerable. Uh, but if Roy Moore gets in this race, you cannot count out Roy Moore emerging from that primary. As we move to the Midwest, a lot of attention in Iowa. Senator Joni Ernst, who's had her own personal issues going through a rather public divorce with her husband. Mm-hmm. And she is viewed by some as vulnerable in 2020. Is she? Uh, Iowa is a state that uh, seems to have taken a sort of has taken a turn since 2016 in terms of its views of President Trump. Uh, Democrats think they can win it on the presidential level, and because of that, they think that Joni Ernst is uh, uh, vulnerable. Uh, this is not probably at the top tier of Democratic pickups. It's on that next tier. Uh, you know, the problem they have is that they don't really have a, a blue-chip recruit in that state. Uh, Tom Vilsack, the former governor and agriculture secretary, uh, decided not to run. And we learned this week that uh, Cindy Axney, who is a, a freshman uh, member of the House from the Des Moines area, won't run. There's a couple people in the wings there, but Joni Ernst is raising a, a, a good amount of money, has launched a pretty aggressive campaign, and this is going to be a this is a possible but a difficult pickup opportunity for Democrats. And Mike DeBonis, can you explain the process of recruiting these candidates, and in particular what uh, the Senate leaders Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell are dealing with? Sure. I mean, it's it's a lot of phone calls. It's a lot of hands on uh, uh, touching uh, of, uh, you know, t- touching base, seeing what people's concerns are, seeing what people's aspirations are, understanding that, uh, giving people the space and the the time to decide, but also, you know, calling on surrogates, calling on influential people that you think that you think can um you know, make an impression on on these these people that they think would make the the strongest candidates in these states and raise the money and raise the money absolutely. And uh, you know, for a lot of people, especially uh, former governors, people who've held statewide office before, uh, sometimes going into uh, you know the, the prospect of being a junior senator uh, where you have to wait six, 12 years before uh, occupying a position of real influence can be uh, sort of a less than enthralling scenario. Um, and this time, you know, the, the biggest enemy Chuck Schumer seems to have is the presidential race where you have you've had multiple recruits, starting with Stacey Abrams, who's still entertaining a presidential run. But look at Beto O'Rourke in Texas, J- John Hickenlooper in Colorado and possibly Steve Bullock in Montana. Um, uh, deciding to enter the presidential race rather than uh, go through another Senate, look at a Senate run. And, uh, you know, all of, the, all of those recruits have decided that they'd rather roll their dice um, in, in the, on the presidential stage than uh, look at a Senate slog. And, and that's a real uh, that's been a real uh, concern for Democratic recruiters. But to that point, based on the statement from Stacey Abrams, it's clear that uh, she's not interested in being a U.S. senator, so she's pretty much separated herself from mm-hmm. running. But as you look at John Hickerluber, former governor of Colorado, and you look at Beto O'Rourke, former member of the House in Texas, as you look at the polling right now, and it's early, 
but with former Vice President Joe Biden in the mid to high 30s. As this race continues, could you see a scenario where some of these presidential candidates say, you know what, maybe I'll go back home and run for the Senate instead? Uh, the Democratic strategists I've talked to don't rule that out. Um, they don't they aren't counting on it by any means. Uh, in particular, in Colorado, Democrats don't think they need John Hickenlooper to win that seat. Um, it's different with Montana because they think that Steve Bullock is sort of unique in that state and his ability to to run uh, better work. It's it's also they would love to have him given the the strength of his performance against Ted Cruz last year. Um, they, they think it's possible that some of these people come back, but it's not at all pro- probable. Or it's not something that they're counting on. Um, they do have a lot of time to decide. I know for uh, Colorado, you're looking at a um, uh, a filing deadline that's actually after, you know, certainly after Iowa, New Hampshire and the Super Tuesday primaries. So uh, Hickenlooper could see that, you know, maybe his pro- prospects aren't good, get out of that race and get into a Senate race. Uh, some other states are even later than that. So uh, it's definitely a scenario to keep an eye on. So as you look at 2020 right now, in the spring of 2019, you think the Republicans keep control of the Senate? Yeah, I would I would call them prohibitive favorites to keep control of the Senate. You know, it's certainly possible to see them losing a seat or two, going from a three seat seat advantage down to a two or one seat advantage. Um, but you could also, you know, certainly with um, there are scenarios where Republicans do well and actually pick up seats. They they not only look at Alabama, but they look at Michigan as a possible pickup opportunity if President uh, Trump does well in that state again. Uh, Gary Peters, the first term senator there, is not very well known and has a lot of work to do uh, to reintroduce himself to voters. And, and Democrats or Republicans think that he's vulnerable to a challenge. What about the House of Representatives? Well, it is early to uh, it's even earlier when you start talking about House races and the landscape there. Um, I will say that Republicans are starting to to roll out recruits in some of these seats that they lost in 2018. Uh, by early accounts, they're doing a much better job of recruiting women to run, which was a big weakness for them in 2018, where you had a lot of incumbent uh, men lose to Democratic women. Um, just this week, uh, the, you know, I think this past week, excuse me, you saw a, a, a Republican woman uh, announce uh, against uh, Abigail Spanberger in Virginia, the Richmond area. That's going to be a key pickup opportunity for Democrats in uh, Orange County, California, where Democrats sort of ran the table. Uh, there's a number of uh, um, actually minority women who are going to be running for seats there. Um, and, you know, the, the recruiting is something that we're going to be watching closely as as the cycle moves forward. Republicans believe they can get a good chunk of those seats back in 2018 that, that they lost in 2018 back in 2020. Um, but at the same time, Democrats think they have offensive opportunities themselves to pick up even more seats, in particular in Texas, where there were a number of uh, suburban seats where they think, uh, uh, you know, they, they have some opportunities. Um, so uh, we're going to be watching closely as this plays out over the next few months. And as you well know, because you are immersed in all things Congress, uh, in the Senate, the minority still has some influence. But in the House, with a vast majority of House Republicans having been in the majority, now in the minority, you wonder if they say, is it worth it? 
That's right. Uh, there were some sort of interesting developments uh, this week along those lines. You had Adam Kinzinger, who's a uh, 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 sort of a young Republican uh, kind of rising star, say, you know, I certainly wouldn't mind if the president nominated me to be Air Force Secretary. And a lot of people interpreted that as uh, this is a guy who may not be enjoying the life in the minority very much and might be looking for a, for a change of career. Uh, but yeah, that, anytime you've got, um, uh, you, you, you're transitioning from the majority to the minority, uh, there's a lot of vet- veterans who sort of decide that, you know, minority life isn't for me and maybe uh, look- looking for a change. And there- there's a couple of p- others on sort of Democrats target lists who are, you know, more veteran members, people like Fred Upton from Michigan, who uh, they're wondering, you know, now that he's in the minority, how much longer is he going to want to stick around? A couple other people in that in that group. So same question, looking at the House right now. In May of 2019, do you think the Democrats maintain control in 2021? I, I think you have to say, again, prohibitive favorites that Democrats keep control. Uh, so much is going to depend on what happens at the top of the ticket with the presidential race. Uh, but right now, you know, j- just the, the the dominance of the Democratic performance in 2018 gave them a good cushion going into 2020 so that even if they do you do see strong Republican performance in some of these these districts. Uh, you know, Democrats are feeling pretty good about their odds of keeping the majority. Mike DeBonis, who covers Congress and politics for The Washington Post. I think we've covered just about all of it. Thank you very much yeah. for stopping by our C-SPAN studios. Steve, anytime. Uh, my pleasure. And a reminder, this podcast is available online at cspan.org and on the free C-SPAN radio app. We thank you for listening. 